Micah 7, verses 1 through 9. Woe is me, for I have become as when the summer fruit has been gathered, as when the grapes have been gleaned. There is no cluster to eat, no first ripe fig that my soul desires. The godly has perished from the earth, and there is no one upright among mankind. They all lie in wait for blood, and each hunts the other with a net. Their hands are on what is evil to do it well. The prince and the judge ask for a bribe. The great man utters the evil desire of his soul. Thus they weave it together. The best of them is like a briar. The most upright of them is a thorn hedge. The day of your watchman of your punishment has come. Now their confusion is at hand. Put no trust in a neighbor. Have no confidence in a friend. Guard the doors of your mouth from, who, from her who lies in your arms. For the son treats the father with contempt. <clears throat> the daughter rises up against her mother. The daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies are the men of his own house. But as for me, I will look to the Lord. I will wait for the God of my salvation. My God will hear me. Rejoice not over me, my, O oh my enemy. When I fall, I shall rise. When I sit in darkness, the Lord will be the light to me. I will bear the indignation of the Lord because I have sinned against him until he pleads my cause and executes judgment for me. He will bring me out to the light. I shall look upon his vindication. This is the very word of God. Well, we've spent um, this Advent season together studying this little book of Micah, and I hope you have learned a few things from our study that maybe you didn't know before. You probably know at least this, right? What is the theme of the book of Micah? I think I heard it. Judgment. That's it. But in each of the three sections of Micah, as you hear the words of judgment, there is always a word of hope. And one of the things we can learn from that is this. When we accept God's verdict against us, then and only then, we can truly hope in God's vindication of us. Let me say that again. When we accept God's verdict against us, then we can truly hope in God's vindication of us. Here's how we see this unfold in this final section of Micah, chapters 6 and 7. First, we hear God's complaint against his people. Second, we see God's action against his people. But then lastly, maybe somewhat surprisingly, we read of God's vindication of his people. God's complaint against his people, God's action against his people, and then God's verdict 
or sorry, God's vindication of his people. Now, Micah chapter 6, this is where we're beginning today, reads like a courtroom scene. In the first two verses, the God of Israel speaks through his prophet, instructing him to plead his case. The ESV says, um, plead your case. But the NIV, I think, is is a more accurate translation here. Plead my case. This is God's accusation, his complaint against his people. And he's telling the prophet to speak on his behalf and utter the complaint. He tells him to come before the mountains and the hills. Now, the mountains and the hills called here in verse 2, the enduring foundations of the earth, have been around, right, long enough to witness the generational crimes that God is about to assert against his people. So who are the defendants in this trial? The end of verse 2 tells us that the Lord, see it in all caps, this is Yahweh, the God of Israel, he has an indictment, he has a complaint, he has a charge against his own people. Now, friends, if you want to understand the significance of a passage like this, if you want to make sense of the book of Micah, like so many of the other prophets, if you want to know how you're supposed to apply something that was written 700 years or so before the coming of Jesus, then you have to understand, in fact, in order to understand pretty much the entire Bible, you have to understand the significance of the people of God in the Bible. In the Old Testament, that's known to us as the nation of Israel. If you're going to know how to read your Bible and how to read the prophets, you need to know something about the significance of the people of God. So let's remind ourselves, the God of the Bible, known as Yahweh, is presented to us as the God of Israel. Now think of it for a moment. This is in a similar way to how, for instance, Dagon would be identified as the God of the Philistines. Here are the Philistines. Who, are the Phil- who is the God of the Philistines? And you would say, Dagon is. Or perhaps Marduk would be identified as the God of the Babylonians. So here's the Babylonian Empire. Who is the great patron deity of the Babylonians? And the answer would be, Marduk, he is the God of the Babylonians. So here's the nation of Israel. Who's the God of the nation of Israel? And the nations knew. The nations knew his name. His name was Yahweh, the Lord in all caps in our Bibles, as we talked about in the first week. He is the God of Israel. So a key distinction, of course, here is that for Israel, unlike all the other nations, for them, they only had one God, They didn't worship several gods with maybe one at the top. They worshiped one and only one God who was then the true God. Well, that depended very much on which nation or people group was the most powerful. Every time Israel was conquered or oppressed by some other empire, it would be preposterous to go on thinking that somehow Israel's God was sovereign over the gods of those victorious nations. All you had to do was just look to see who was in charge. 
But the Old Testament claim throughout all of Israel's troubled history and the Old Testament expectation is that in spite of what may be true on the world scene at any given moment, the God of Israel, Yahweh, was the true God, the creator of all reality, in fact, and that in the end, he would prove himself to be the world's sovereign. How would we know? By his coming through for his people, for Israel, over against any other world power. When Israel, with her God, ruled the world, then we would know who the true God was. Now, as Christians, the claim that we make is that this rule of God over the world through his people has already begun. We believe that the long-awaited expectation of the Old Testament has already been brought to its fulfillment. This is what we mean when we speak about the kingdom of God that has been inaugurated in Jesus of Nazareth. And what this also means is that when we speak of the people of God today, we cannot then be referring to modern-day Israel. Lots of Christians get hung up on this, right? Because we hear Israel in our news feeds, and we read about Israel in our Old Testaments. But we have to understand the distinction that's being played here in the fulfillment of Israel's expectation in Jesus of Nazareth. Do I need to say this? Maybe I do. We certainly also cannot be referring to some other geopolitical power as the true people of God. You know, like, I don't know, the United States of America? The people of God today are those who are identified not with any particular geopolitical nation or power, Israel, the United States, or some other. The people of God today, as Christians, we know, are identified with the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, who is himself the true Israel, as well as the true God of Israel, and indeed the true God of the whole world. And the reason why the people of God are significant is because, as God said all the way back in Genesis chapter 12, it is through his people that God would exercise his rule and his dominion over the whole world. Now, I sure hope you understand this, Christian, because it makes a huge difference for how you should think about yourself and how you should go about living your life. To be called the people of God, the children of God, the children of the true God, the victorious God, means <laughs> means your royalty. We are meant to rule and reign with the Lord Jesus over his world. That should not surprise you because that is what has always been true of the people of God. But with such great privilege comes an enormous responsibility. The people of God must rule and reign with him in his way. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. 
We must rule God's world in God's way, and there are plenty of wrong ways to do it. And that's where we can come to an old prophet like the prophet Micah and begin to be instructed from his ancient prophecy. And indeed, from this courtroom scene that we're looking at here in chapter six, where God takes his own people to trial. What should concern us all who claim to be part of God's people is not so much what is happening in our country, but what is happening in our churches in every country. Consider then God's complaint against his people here in verses three, four, and five. Look at it. God says, oh, my people, what have I done to you? How have I wearied you? Answer me. For I brought you up from the land of Egypt and redeemed you from the house of slavery. And I sent before you Moses, Aaron, and Miriam. Oh, my people, remember what Balak, king of Moab, devised. And what Balaam, the son of Beor, answered him. And what happened from Shittim to Gilgal, that you may know the righteous acts of the Lord. All right, what has God done to us? That's what he asks. What have I done to you? And the answer to that question requires, as you noticed here, a change in English in a preposition. Look at what God has done for us. In verses four and five, he reminds the people of his great and mighty acts on their behalf in the Exodus and in their long march into the promised land. Now, those are vivid stories in Israel's history. If you know your Old Testament, you would understand what he's talking about there that he's pretty much summarized in just a couple verses. These are the great stories of Israel's redemption. And it should not surprise us too much if we find, we do find in the New Testament that the achievements of Jesus in his life, death, and resurrection are told in similar ways that the Exodus story was told to Israel over and over again. It's the reason why as Christians, we should rehearse the story of Jesus reciting it and repeating it so that we can remember, along with ancient Israel of old, the righteous acts of the Lord. So do you get tired of hearing the story? You hear the kids say it again? You've heard the words every Christmas season? You read, this, you read the same story? It shouldn't get old. Rehearse them over and over again. These are God's great acts of salvation. The things that he has done for us to prove not only his power, but is also his intention, his desire to be our God. But these saving acts of God on our behalf also put his mark of ownership on us and require us to walk worthy of his call on our lives. You just think about it. God has done these great and mighty acts, brought the nation out of slavery in Egypt so doesn't this now make a difference, lay a claim on how they should live their lives? So if God's saving acts for us in Jesus have also likewise put, his, put an obligation on us to be his people. So what does God want from us? That's what the people ask in verses six and seven. Does God want burnt offerings of one-year-old calves or how about a sacrifice of thousands of rams with 10,000s of rivers of oil, they say. Still not good enough? Okay, how about 
I give you my firstborn child, they say. Will that do it? Now, I hope that you can detect here that something is off in their tone. Do you see it? What's the problem? The problem is that the people have turned God's covenant with them into a contract. They answer God's complaint with evidence of their own preparedness to do whatever God wants. Okay, fine, God. Just name the price. Tell me what it'll do to satisfy you, and I'll do it. I'll pay it. Friends, many Christians do something similar. Well, I go to church, don't I? Pay my tithes. Don't you see how much I gave? I read my Bible. I pray. I don't, you know, lie. I don't cheat. I don't steal. What else does God want from me? Now, do you see the problem? Instead of answering his complaint against them, they have uttered their own complaint against him. They want to put God in the dock, saying he has no right to press charges because, after all, look at all that we've done for you. Look at all that we're willing to do for you. If God will just say what it is he wants... Now, Micah 6.8, as you know, is a memorable response to this slick move that they've tried to make. Don't you know? Of course you know. God has made it plain what he wants, and he doesn't demand too much. Just three things mentioned here. But neither can he be bought off with some great sacrifice or some dead moralism. Or to say it another way, God needs nothing from you. He's the God who made it all. At the same time, God demands everything from you. Because what's at stake here is who we think God is and how we relate to him accordingly. Now, let's keep reading and see if we can see this point emerge more clearly. The rest of chapter 6 and the first six verses of chapter 7 are God's response to the verdict from our courtroom scene. God's people are found guilty. They've broken their covenant with him. They failed to be his people. And it's important to see here that Israel's problem is not imperfection. Let's try to make this plain. God's complaint against his people is not that in spite of their sincere efforts to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with their God, they just don't do it enough. They just don't measure up. Again, God does not weary his people with demands that are too burdensome. That's what he says in verse 3. How have I wearied you? God is not a ruthless taskmaster who needs you to do what you cannot do and then punishes you for failing to do it. Let me give you some good news. This will set some of you free. God does not expect you to change the world. At the same time, God wants to change the world through you. What we see in verses 9 to 16 in chapter 6 are the covenant curses that God brings in response to the guilty verdict against his people. But just jump down to verse 16 because this verse summarizes the reason why God has found the people guilty. Again, it's not that they 
weren't doing enough, couldn't meet God's ruthless demands. Verse 16 says it this way, they have kept the statutes of Omri and all the works of the house of Ahab. Now again, you gotta know your Old Testament to know what that means. These were two of Israel's kings who lived more than a hundred years before Micah and who had become legendary for their acts of rebellion against God. You see, it's not imperfection that God has noted in his people. God knows how imperfect his people are. It's idolatry that God notes in his people. It's not that they have failed to keep this or that commandment of God. It's that they have exchanged the commandments of God for the commandments of some other God. They're worshiping another God altogether. They have violated the covenant. They have turned away from the God who set them free from slavery and turned back to the very gods that had enslaved them before. Verses 10 to 12 remind us that we aren't talking here about what we might call religious duties. Just look at it. This is the everyday stuff of life, like fair business, just actions, truthful speech. You worship the wrong God, you behave in the wrong ways. You see the people of God acting in ways that are against the word of God and the will of God, then there you see the people of God caught in idolatry. The God of Israel is not relegated to a temple or to a church building. He is, as one commentator puts it, the Lord of the shopping center, whose claims over his people extend to the most mundane of life's duties. You see, God needs nothing from you, but make no mistake, he demands everything of you. Now, when we get to chapter 7, we see that though God may have won the trial against his people, this is not a day of rejoicing for him. You win a court trial, you walk out and say, yeah, God's not pleased. This is not a day of rejoicing. Chapter seven is a lament. It's God's lament. He looks at the sorry state of his world due to the unfaithfulness of his people, and this is how he feels. Look at it, chapter seven, verse one. Woe is me. This is the prophet speaking on behalf of God. This is how God feels at the failure of his people to keep his covenant. He describes how he feels here by comparing himself to someone coming into his vineyard and finding all the fruits gone. It's a metaphor, of course. There is no godly one, he says. And what is a godly one? someone who seeks the good of all rather than their own benefit. The result of God's people failing to be God's people, turning to another God, worshiping another deity, walking in the ways of the nations, is that the whole world suffers. Verses five and six describe a society that is com coming completely undone. Did you hear this when Penny read this? No one can even trust a neighbor, a friend, his own spouse, or nearest kin. Now, when things get that bad, right? When the person you're sitting next to right now, you can't even trust them, you know that a society like that can't last long. 
Are there similar concerns to be noticed in our own day in the unraveling of the basic family structures? Well, no doubt. But what are we going to do about it? It's quite easy to look upon a decadent society in any generation and complain about or criticize what you see out there. And all your news feeds, your favorite ones, will help you talk about how bad those people are, those enemies, those other people. It's not that that is wrong necessarily. It's just that it's not quite in tune with what God does. Don't you see it? God weeps. God laments. So should we. But at the same time, take note of how the prophet Micah responds. Here in Micah chapter 7, verse 7, the prophet now speaks. He does not see himself here as separate from the decadent society. He doesn't say, oh yeah, all those wicked people out there, but look at me, I'm the righteous one. He doesn't do that. He doesn't defend himself. He doesn't give off a sense of self-righteousness like so many People who claim to be God's people seem to give off today. He knows he shares their same fate. And he throws himself upon the mercy of God. Look at it, Micah 7, verse 7. But as for me, I will look to the Lord. I will wait for the God of my salvation. My God will hear me. Do you hear that? He doesn't speak like the people spoke in chapter six. He doesn't say, well, what do you want? Do whatever you want, God. Fine, name the price. He says, I'm guilty and I'm gonna wait for the Lord. My God will hear me. See, it's prophets like Micah who saw the dark storm of judgment approaching, but now that it has broken loose, they see the silver lining of salvation beyond it. The question is, do we? Do we? Do we see the silver lining of salvation? You know, you and I ought to be able to see it even more clearly than Micah could see it. Because if you notice here in chapter 7, Micah has hope for the future, even if he senses that he's not going to see it in his day. The storm clouds of God's judgment have arrived. Micah knows that his fate is with his people who have turned against the God of Israel, who have turned against their own God. But he says this then in verse eight. Let's look at it. Rejoice not over me, O my enemy. When I fall, I shall rise. When I sit in darkness, the Lord will be a light to me. He is speaking here on behalf of Israel, the people of God, and he knows there's a vindication coming. So he continues on in verse nine. I will bear the indignation of the Lord because I have sinned against him. You hear that? There's no self-righteousness. There's no pleading on his own behalf. I have sinned against him. I will bear the indignation of the Lord until he pleads my cause Until he executes judgment for me, then he will bring me out to the light. And look what the prophet says. I shall look upon his vindication. I'm going to see it. 
The prophet knows that the covenant curses upon Israel, though rightly deserved, will not have the final word for the people of God and for the hope of the world. Israel has sinned and must bear the wrath, but somehow, somehow, God's gonna come through. When the covenant curse has come and done its worst, then God's vindication of his people will finally come in its fullest. The prophet knows it. He believes it. And so he says to the enemies of God's people in verse 10, they will no longer wonder, where is the Lord your God? They're not gonna stand over you scoffing and saying, well, our God has triumphed. No longer will they wonder, where is your God? Because they will see him clearly. There will be no doubt where he is. And when that day comes, the prophet says, verses 11 to 17, chapter seven, it's gonna be like a new beginning. Verse 13 says that the earth will be desolate. Well, of course it will. The curse, the covenant curses of God's people will have been exhausted. It's like almost a new creation. Starting from Genesis 1, in the beginning. So verse 11 speaks of it's time to rebuild the walls of the city. That's what you do, right? City's been torn down, destroyed. Another army has come in, wiped you out. You start rebuilding the walls. He says when this day comes, he goes on to describe the city limits will be extended. And all the nations will come. God himself, he says, will shepherd his people, leading them in his ways. And all opposition will be silenced and will turn to the Lord. What a day that will be. Like a new exodus. You, did, you see it, don't you, Christian? You see, two different times in the Gospels, we find Jesus alluding to what we find in Micah chapter 7. Did you notice them? In Luke chapter 13, verse 6, Jesus tells this parable. A man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he came seeking fruit on it and found none. Sound familiar? Jesus is saying, remember the days that Micah talked about? When the full covenant curse will come, and there'll be nothing left? Or how about in Matthew chapter 10, verses 35 to 36, where Jesus says this, I have come to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law and a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Jesus was claiming on his way to Jerusalem that what Micah saw as the fullness of that covenant curse coming upon his people had arrived with him. This final day of reckoning, the day of God's full covenant curse being poured out, his wrath being vented on his people has come in Jesus. But with the end of that society lies the hope just on the other side, the beginning of a new society, the arrival of what we would call the kingdom of God. So now what? That's the day you live in. And oh, if the church of Jesus Christ could get it once again, 
The reality of what the New Testament authors came to see was now true in Jesus. They began to reread their Old Testament and say, Jesus has done what we hoped would happen. So what should we do? Well, it's time to be God's people again. It's time to get to work walking in his ways in our generation. It's time once again to proclaim to the world the reality of who this God of Israel truly is. Well, nobody could probably say it best than Micah himself at the end of his book. Here's what he says. Look at it. Micah chapter 7, verses 18 to 20. Who is a God like you? That's a play on his name. The name Micah means who is like Yahweh. Who is a God like you? Nothing is more important to the world than that those who are God's people know who their God is, what he is like, and how we relate to him. And in the New Testament, God expects from his people what he has always expected from his people. He expects fruit on the vine, what the New Testament calls the fruit of the Spirit, what Jesus said all of his disciples will produce so long as they are attached to him as the true vine. We live our lives in a dark world like lights shining. The message of judgment on decadence will always need to be proclaimed. That which comes from idolatry will ultimately perish. And we should be the first to note this. But someone has already come and borne the indignation of the Lord on our behalf. So whether in our day, brothers and sisters, we see a world transformed by the faithfulness of God's people, or we see a world unraveling by God's people's unfaithfulness, we, like Micah, have a call to wait for the God of our salvation because there's no other God like him. I close with these words that Micah says. Who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity, passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance. This is who God is. He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. You will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. You will show faithfulness to Jacob and steadfast love to Abraham as you have sworn to our fathers from the days of old and in our Lord Jesus Christ. That verse has found its yes and its amen. Amen. Let us pray. So Father in heaven, as we now draw so close to this Christmas holiday, this Christmas feast, May we who claim your name, who call ourselves after our Lord Jesus Christ, may we be the first to know that the way of flourishing in God's world is the way of following the true shepherd. And the hope of the world is for the people of God to truly worship the one true God to live lives worthy of the gospel, to walk in his ways and by your grace to see your fruit produced in our lives. The love, the joy, the peace that the world longs for 
is only found as we're attached to the true vine. So may we who identify ourselves by your name be the first to lay down our charges against you, to repent. You've not wearied us. You've not done anything to us. You've done everything for us. You are our God. You have the words of eternal life. So may we come humbly to your table. May we come prayerfully into your presence. You will shepherd us. You will teach us to love justice, to show justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with our God. And that's all we could ask for. Grant this to us now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.